as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, which is kind of like the brand of Christianity that, that we sort of adhere to here at Refresh. And look, broadly speaking, these sort of, these foundational beliefs that we've, we've been talking about probably aren't that different from uh, some of the principles that you may have heard if you've visited other faiths or other Christian denominations, Christian churches. Um, but often with these things, you know, the devil's in the details, isn't it? So um, that's kind of, we've been doing a bit of a deeper dive on some of these, some of these principles, some of these philosophies that sort of set apart, um, I guess, uh, the, some of the principles we believe in as opposed to some other things. Uh, that you may have may have heard of before, and I guess one of our main goals um, as we've been going through this series is that <clears throat> we really just want to put present these issues to you so that they're on your radar. We um we really just want to convince you to consider or perhaps reconsider your position on some of these issues, whether or not you've you, you know you walk in here. Um, and you put your hand up and say you're a sold-out Christian, a sold-out Seventh-day Adventist, you know, like Sam has done this morning. But uh, or, or you've walked in here thinking, oh, you know, I'm not really sold on, you know, Christianity, the Bible, Jesus, all of that stuff. We just want to present these issues to you because we think that in some of these principles that we try to live by, there's something in it for everyone. You know, whether you take on board everything you read about in the Bible or not, we think there's something in this, in some of these questions for everyone. So that's, again, what I'd like to do today is just present an issue to you that maybe you haven't thought about in a while and just, I don't know, just ask you to, to reconsider your position. So these have been sort of, you know, some of life's tougher questions or, or philosophies that we've been discussing, but I want to start off with a simpler one today, a simpler question. And it's one that you've heard before, even if you haven't necessarily um, spent a lot of time thinking about it or, or coming up with an answer for it. And the question is, where do you see yourself in five years? Everyone familiar with this question? Probably been asked it before, whether or not you had an answer ready. And I think broadly speaking, there are probably, I can generalize, maybe two groups of people in the room right now. There's people who have an answer ready for that question because they've spent some time thinking about it. Um, and there are people who haven't. <laughs> and so they don't necessarily have a firm answer ready to give to that question. Um, but I think it's probably fair to suggest that, that many of us, even if we haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, we have some vague ideas, maybe a, a, some general goals, I guess, or, or plans about the things, the types of things that we'd like to achieve or the, where we'd like to see ourselves over this next five-year period of our lives, the next phase of our lives, if you like. I mean, of course, there's, there's also people, obviously, I, in the room right now who, who purposely don't like to have an answer for that question. You know, and I can totally appreciate that. You've got adventurous souls who, who sort of don't like having firm sort of um, targets that they want to hit over the next five years necessarily because they just want to see where life takes them. And that's, you know, that's absolutely fine. But can I, have a, can I just have some hands up though? Who has some idea of the types of things, you don't have to share them with me, but the types of things you, you know, have some sort of answer for yourself for that question, where do you see yourself in five years' time? Got a few hands, that, that's good. Seeing some hands in, at the front of the audience, the kids, that's good as well. Because um, I certainly didn't have an answer, I don't have a great answer right now either. But it's interesting, it, it's deeply personal, I know, and I actually got caught out with this recently. I, um, my wife, Ash, and I, got married last year and we actually did like probably three or four weeks ago we did a bit of a deeper dive on this kind of question we just kind of sort of started chatting and then it kind of the discussion went oh you know what do you think and where do you what kinds of things do you do you want to do over the next five years you know newly married and um 
I'm a bit of a, once I get like a, like fixated on something, I just go like a real hard at it. And so I, I've got this whiteboard on these wheels that I like study with. So I roll the whiteboard out. I got all the, all the different like colored pens and I'm like writing. I've got this mood board, vision board on the wall. And Ash is like, Ash thought it was just like a 10 minute like chat. And then she's like, oh, I've got to settle in here. Like we're going to be here for ages. So so we have this sort of deep, I've got these arrows everywhere, timelines, you know, question marks and stuff. Um, and we were kind of just, you know, spitballing, really. And it was kind of, I, I enjoyed the discussion. I don't, haven't found out from Ash whether you enjoyed it or not. But um, we sort of tabled it. We had people coming over later that day or later that night. And um, we kind of tabled the discussion. But I didn't think we were totally done with it. Um, so I, it's one of those whiteboards you can, you can flip, right? And so I flipped the whiteboard up the other way. And, um, and because we had people coming out, I guess, sorry, for a bit more context, um, it's probably important to have an appreciation for our living situation at the moment, which I typically call a shared living arrangement, which is a code for living with mum and dad. And we live in like a little granny flat um, out the back of my mum and dad's place at the moment. And it's one of those places where if I could write the ad for it as a real estate agent, I would say it's a cozy, adorable, self-contained studio with pool access and friendly neighbours. And the other interesting thing about the, the studio that we're living in at the moment is it's got a lot of like glass screen doors and windows. So like, and because it's open plan, Wherever you are in the house, you can't escape. Anyone walking past can see, you know, because it's just like living in an aquarium sometimes it feels. So, so like, we've got curtains and stuff. You don't want to have them curtains all locked up all day or whatever. So, if you can imagine, I've flipped the whiteboard over. And because we don't have a whole lot of storage there, I just push the whiteboard up against one of the walls, right? And the curtain was behind it, but... The text was flipped away from the inside of the room. So I just figured, you know, people come in, see the whiteboard in the corner, no harm done, right? Of course, you know, Ash has got a bit of more of an eye for details. So if we got people coming, she's going, oh, well, we can't put this anywhere. But what I'll do, it's probably better if they don't see it at all, the whiteboard. So she pulled the curtain out a bit, pushed the thing right up, and then pulled the curtain around, around the whiteboard. Right, smart thinking, right? But she thought I'd rubbed off the text. But now you, if you follow the story, you've got a mental picture. The text is now facing out the window of our studio. So anyone who walks past, which is like a fair few people, anyone who walks past, has we've, it's like we've purposely broadcasted our five-year plan for everybody to see. And we had no idea. I wish I could say that like an hour later, we, we, I like realized and saw, oh, no, no, that's not going to work. Well. It was three weeks. Three weeks later, I got the whiteboard back out to study, and I was like, this has just been sitting here for everybody to see. Even if you haven't, uh, well, uh, hopefully you haven't done something like that, but even, and even if you haven't broadcasted these sort of personal goals or personal aims, I think it's probably fair to assume that many of us do have them, you know, whether we explicitly state them um, or not. But what about uh, the, next, the next 10 years of your life, next 20, next 30 years? Actually, I was running some ideas by mum this week, and uh, I asked some of these questions to her, and she, I come to 30 years, and she goes, in 30 years, I'll be happy if I can see myself in the mirror. She's <coughs> but I think to go even further, what I re- the question I really want to ask you is, where do you see yourself in 100 years from now? 
where do you see yourself, you know, in a thousand years from now? And what about 5,000? 5,000 years from now, where do you see yourself? I think it's another one of those questions, you know, where do you see yourself in 5,000 years? I'm being a little bit facetious, but, you know, what I'm really asking you is, do you think that there's more to life than just this life? That's really the question that I want to pose to you today. And I think it's another one of those questions that, you know, again, there are people who have spent some time considering their answer to that question. And there are people who, who maybe have, but haven't. Or maybe people who just flat out, you know, they haven't really spent time considering it. And I guess that's what I want us to do this morning. But if you ask me uh, where I'd like to see you in a thousand years' time, what, what do you think my answer might be? I mean, obviously, we're in church. Um, my answer might be that I'd like to see you in heaven in a thousand years' time or in 5,000 years' time. So let's talk, let's talk about heaven, because that's, that's what we're discussing this morning. We're talking about, about any life that comes after this one. And I guess the question of heaven is, is a big one. Obviously, the first one is, is heaven real? Does heaven exist? And I understand that that is a big if. And I'm probably not going to be able to convince you one way or another t- this morning, but I do want you to, to sit with it over the next week or so. But it opens up a lot of other questions, like if it exists... Where is it? Where is heaven? Where, where, where would we go to get there? How would we get there? When can we get there? And what's it like? You know, what, what do you do when you get there? So there's plenty of questions, and, and there's not enough answers really for us to be to be comfortable. I don't think. Certainly not not enough answers for me to share this morning. But um, I guess here at Refresh, the answers to some of those questions we think we can find um, in God's Word. In in the writing of, of some people who were close to Jesus, um, and also in the writings of a woman called Ellen White, who Sharon spoke about a few weeks ago. But I guess to come back to one of those earlier questions, you know, why should we believe that heaven exists at all? I'll just give you a really brief um, take on, on, I guess, the argument that convinces me. I think, you know, to have an answer to the question of whether heaven exists at all, you really have to decide how much of the whole Jesus story, how much of the whole God story you're willing to buy in general. What I would say is that um, there's, fairly, there's a fairly broad consensus that a man named Jesus existed several thousand years ago. And that he, you know, he, the, the events that we read about in the Bible about Jesus, you know, having a following of people and, and preaching and teaching and eventually being killed, there's a there's a fair bit of consensus about those events actually taking place. Where there's obviously more debate is whether Jesus then rose again from the dead after he was killed. And I'm not going to convince you about that either this morning. What I would say, though, is if you you can be convinced, and I certainly am, that Jesus did rise again from the dead, what I would say is if someone... If someone can predict their own death and resurrection and then pull it off, I'm happy to go with anything else that they say. And Jesus did talk about heaven with his disciples. So he said this to them in John chapter 14. If you've got your Bibles, we've got it on the screen as well. We're going to be jumping around a little bit today. I apologize, um, but all the verses should be on the screen. So he talks to his disciples, and this is quite 
right before he actually did go to the cross and, and was crucified, he said to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. And if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? So he's alluding, obviously, to a discussion he's had with them before. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and I'll take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And so John, who's the the disciple that actually wrote this down, many years later experienced a vision that that we believe came from God. And he wrote down what he saw in that vision in, uh, in Revelation. He says this, has this to say about heaven. In Revelation chapter 4, he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat on it, uh, the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. He goes on to talk about, you know, heavenly beings, angels that were surrounding the throne room and just worshipping God, the Father who sat on that throne. And later on, and I know I'm just cherry picking here because there's a lot of detail that he provides, but later on in Revelation, he talks about, more broadly about this holy city that he saw in heaven that eventually he saw come down from heaven to earth that we believe will take place in the future. And he says in Revelation 21, So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. And then later on, the twelve gates were made of pearls, each gate from a single pearl, and the main street was pure gold, as clear as glass. And I think, you know, we're seeing imagery that, I would imagine many of us are familiar with, we're familiar with this imagery of the pearly gates, we're familiar with streets made of gold. And later on, John goes on to talk about a river of life running through the city with trees of life on either side of the river. And if you've, you know, if you've been to any sort of Christian church before, you've had this discussion about heaven before, some of this imagery will be familiar to you. So I guess if we can sort of summarize this picture of heaven that God, uh, that John paints so, we can see it as this like this perfect realm, if you like, that God is currently inhabiting along with, with Jesus and his angels. But the question I think that comes to my mind after that is, you know, what about us? Where do we, where do we fit into this story? My mind immediately goes to uh, those experiences where, you know, you meet up with people who you know, family and friends that you haven't seen for some time, or you go on a holiday, you maybe, you know, overseas or Uluru or something, and at some point, someone wants to take a group picture, and um, so you all sort of, you know, crowd in, and someone takes a picture, and then what does everyone want to do once the picture's taken? You want to have a quick look, don't you? You want to see if, if it panned out all right, but what are you really interested in when you have a look at the picture? I think I'm hearing down the front, you want to see how you look. <laughs> I want to see what I look like. I really don't really mind what everyone else looks like. I don't care if it's overexposed, underexposed. Couldn't, couldn't give a continental. There could be, I could be in Hawaii with dolphins backflipping in the background of the photo. If I've got spinach in my teeth, we're hitting delete and we're going again. <laughs> so 
So where do we fit into, into this picture? And again, if you're more familiar with, with other Christian churches and their sort of their, their principles, their foundations, this is kind of where you might find we as a denomination or as a church differ a little from something you might have heard before. Because as we've spoken about previously at Refresh, I think last year, um, and hopefully it, it's up on, available online if you want to have a look at it later, um, we've talked before about how we don't, we don't believe there's a lot of evidence in the Bible to suggest that, that human beings have an immortal soul. We don't believe that the evidence in the Bible points to um, our intelligence or our personality or whatever it is you want to call the thing that makes us us going on and living on after we die and either going to heaven or, or to hell or to purgatory or some other place. That's not, that's not something that we, that we see much evidence for in, in, in Scripture. So instead, we believe that, that when we die, um, you know, we're dead and we have to wait for what Jesus promised his disciples back in John 14. Essentially, that he'd come back and that he'd, he'd take them and hopefully he'd take us to be with him and his father in heaven one day. And so what is that event going to be like? Again, that's another topic for another day, but, but just briefly, um, here's how Paul, one of the most famous early Christians, um, describes that experience of Jesus coming back um, to collect his followers uh, in a letter that he wrote to uh, a group of believers in Thessalonica. So in First Th- Thessalonians, 416, uh, this is what he says. He says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And then he says, The dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then he speaks about returning to heaven. And other writers speak about returning to heaven and what that will look like. But I just want to focus here for a second on, on this phrase, the dead in Christ. What is it to be dead in Christ? Or what is it to be alive in Christ for that matter? Because Paul explains in another letter, and I don't have the text, um, in Ephesians he explains that what he believes it means when he's, when he's talking about being dead in Christ or alive in Christ, being in Christ. And he says it simply involves accepting God's offer to be made right with him through Jesus who died in our place. And on top of that, Paul goes on to talk about that acceptance, that decision, going on to infect our character, going on to infect everything that we, that we say, going on to infect everything that we do, everything that we think. Paul talks about that acceptance of God's grace being what saves us, what, what makes us right with God. But he and other Bible writers then talk about that going on and driving us into action and allowing us to make that into a, and allow, and allowing that to make us into a new person. And I mean, that acceptance, that's essentially what we're celebrating here with Sam this morning, that declaration of his acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice. So we read the dead in Christ and the alive in Christ are caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then what? Well, John, again, Jesus' disciple, refers to this event, this experience as the first resurrection. 
where anyone who believes in and accepts Jesus' death in their place is brought to life and able to, to leave this broken world in exchange for a new home in heaven. But John says it doesn't actually end there because he goes on in his vision and he says in, uh, in Revelation 20, Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Later, he says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. I guess the first thing that stands out to me in that text is, is again, this phrase, authority to judge. What's that all about? I mean, uh, full disclosure, I know that I shouldn't, uh, and I'm probably oversharing with you a little bit here, but I like to judge all of you all the time. (laughs) It's actually really satisfying for a second, and then I feel really guilty about it, but I judge people every day. I judge, you know, the things that, I judge their taste in movies. You know, people recommend you a movie, you fork out 20 bucks to go see it, you go, that was terrible. If they recommend a movie to me ever again, I'm never going. Or their taste in music, I, I, I judge people's, you know, taste in, in clothes and their, car, their taste in cars. I love to judge how messy someone's car or house is, because I feel like you can learn a lot about someone based on that. And it's funny how the people you think would be least likely to have a messy car usually have the filthiest cars. That's my experience anyway. But what's the difference between me judging people from day to day and being given the authority to judge. Well, the difference is that, you know, when, when I judge, I'll pick on, I know Nath Fraser isn't here today, so I'll pick on him. When, when I judge Nathan for wearing a, a black belt with brown shoes, why should that matter to him? It shouldn't, right? I've got no authority. He, he doesn't need to care what I think. And this is just an example, right? I just realized Nath might watch this video later. Just so you know, Nath, uh, you look great and I love you. Um, but, but I haven't been given any authority to judge. And it says those who are taken to heaven with Jesus are then given authority to judge. And in fact, what we believe as Seventh-day Adventists is, is what they're doing is they're actually, uh, another word for it would be auditing. Um, basically, they're... they're it's, it's a form of oversight. They're, they're getting a chance to look at all the judgments that God has made and see whether they were fair, whether they were truly just. It's pretty incredible to think about that God, this perfect creator, who, who really, as creator, has all authority to do whatever he chooses, opens up the opportunity to us for our benefit, for our satisfaction, so that we can be assured that, he, that He's a fair and loving God. He opens his, his books up to us, if you like, and allows Himself to be audited, allows us to look over the decisions that He's made, to satisfy ourselves that, you know, people who we thought we would see in heaven and aren't there, why not? People who are in heaven who we thought wouldn't be there, why are they there? We can satisfy our curiosity, we can satisfy any doubts that we might have over, over, God's, over the judgments that God has made. It's a pretty incredible um, offer from God. It's one that I would have loved to have been offered from my mum. Uh, when I was 17 years old, I, I remember distinctly thinking, 
that it was incredibly unfair that when I was 13, my brother and I are four years apart, so when I was seven, I thought it was really unfair that when I was 13, my bedtime was 8.30 p.m. and I got to watch one TV show during the week. That was it. My brother just watched TV on his laptop all day, every day, and he got to go to bed at 9 p.m. And I thought, I would have loved the opportunity to confront Mo about that and say, look, I've opened up the books. What do you have to say about this? How do you explain this? What do you call that? What do you call that where he gets to do, he gets to go to bed later, he gets more than me and I get, I got less. My mum's a bit of a smart ass, so she probably would have seen like, I call it inflation. That's I think what she would have said. So after this thousand years, when we can be, when we've been truly assured that those who aren't with us in heaven aren't there for what turns out to be a legitimate set of reasons. John says that we then return to, to earth, but a place that he calls a new earth. He says that God takes this broken world, and I don't think that it's too controversial to characterize our world as a little broken. God takes this broken world that we've really kind of ruined, and he starts again, restoring things to their original glory, to the glory he had when he originally created us. And look, obviously that's not all there is to this story. There's obviously more evidence to weigh up. There are more details than, than what we could sort of talk about in 15 or 20 minutes. But I guess really what I want to leave you with uh, as we finish up is if you've come here and this morning and, you know, you're not really sure how you feel about, you know, Christianity, how you feel about Jesus, about God, all of that stuff. What I really want to leave you thinking about um, maybe this week is, is your answer to that first question well, one of those first questions that was, you know, where do you see yourself in, in 100, in 1,000 or, or 5,000 years? And I guess more specifically, the question I'll ask you is, is there, is there a part of you that wonders whether there could be more to life than just this life? Because like I said, I don't think it's a subject that we tend to consider all that often or all that deeply. But I do think it's, it's an issue where we owe it to ourselves to come to an informed position. And I guess what I mean by that, um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, but I'm getting drilled into me at uni at the moment, the whole, this whole idea of informed consent. You know, when someone comes in, there's something wrong with them, and a healthcare team wants to, wants to do some kind of in intervention in their health, you know, medicine, a, a surgery, whatever it is. It's a requirement that 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 person gives informed consent, that they're aware not only of what the procedure involves, but the risks involved in the procedure, um, the risks of not having the procedure, um, and, and, and any other information that they think is relevant for their decision-making process. And only then can they truly give consent that's valid. And the interesting thing about this that, I've, that, I, I kind of been, that comes to mind for me is that I, I imagine, you know, if, if you weren't able to make that decision for whatever reason, or you weren't able to communicate your decision in that kind of scenario, and you had a proxy, someone else who makes the decision for you, how comfortable would you be if that person was told, you know, 20 seconds of worth of information about the procedure and just sort of went, oh, what do you reckon? Oh, yeah, yeah, go for it. And they went off their gut, gut reaction their vibe, or just, you know, given it minimal thought. That would make me very uncomfortable as the person who's then going to undergo the procedure. But I think we tend to do that sometimes in these big 
decisions is we don't do our due diligence. We we tend to go, we tend to consider something for a little while, just mull over it for a bit, and then we kind of move on and we don't come back to it. But I guess what I'm hoping is that this week maybe you will come back to it. Um, because I think that if someone else were making this decision for you, you would want them to do their due diligence. So I think we owe it to ourselves to do our own due diligence. And I guess on, on the other hand, if if you'd put your hand up and you'd say, no, look, I'm, I'm already, uh, I've done my due diligence and I'm, I've decided I'm a, I'm a sold out Jesus follower. Like Sam, I'm a sold out Jesus follower. If you've already crystallized in your mind what you believe about heaven and what you think heaven is all about, I really want to challenge you even further because I feel like I've been challenged even further to ask myself a different type of question. And that is, does the way that I live reflect what I believe? If I believe there's more to life than just this life, am I living in a way that prepares me for, for what is to come? Am I living in a way that reflects those values that I have? Because Jesus, Jesus challenges his followers, his friends, his disciples over and over again. He says, you know, be ready, stay ready for this return that he's, he talks to them about. Because he knows us, he knows our character, he knows that believing, us believing in something intellectually doesn't always translate into practice or application in our lives. And if I look at my own life, I might believe there's far more to, to living than just this life that I have, the next 50, 60 years, however long it is. But sometimes I allow myself to have tunnel vision. I only care about the next five years. I'm only focused on the next 10, 15 years. The way that I live day to day, you wouldn't know that I believe there's more to come. Because I become obsessed with the things that are in this world that I can achieve. And I'm not focused so much on the things that I could be achieving to further God's kingdom. So that's what I want to leave with you, those of you who would put your hand up and say you're already sold out of Jesus' followers. And I think the only reason I am asking you these questions is, like I said, they've been rattling around in my head all week. And um, I think it's really up to all of us to help each other along this journey, help each other answer these questions and keep each other in check a little bit as well. Um, so with that, let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you this morning that we can come here and we can worship. Uh, we can consider some of life's uh, big questions uh, and whether there's more to life than just this life. Uh, I want to thank you especially for Sam this morning and um, just his, his boldness, his courage to just put his hand up and say like he's all in with you. Uh, I pray that you give those of us who, who call ourselves Jesus followers that same kind of courage, that same boldness and that we would allow it to infect our lives everything that we say and do. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we can't wait for you to come back. In Jesus' name, amen.